you know, with everything going on, my family has really enjoyed taking walks recently. And we were out on one uh, just the other day, and it was a little bit of a longer walk, and we took all of our kids with us, all five of them, and uh, the little ones were in tow. I think we may have had a stroller for them, but the, the, the older kids, we said, hey, you guys can do this. Walk with us. And on the way back home, as we were doing this loop, one of my older kids, I, I won't throw them under the bus, but one of them uh, started to grumble a little bit and, uh, and say, man, this is just a long walk. I don't think I can do this. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. And uh, I just, I, I remember I, I, I kind of looked back at, at this older child of mine and, and uh, said, come on, you can do it. And I was trying to encourage him. And then he still was kind of saying, no, I don't think I can do it. Well, my daughter, she was keeping pace with me up at the front of the pack. And even she was skipping on this walk from time to time. So I, I slowly dropped back to this other older child that I have and uh, put my arm around him. And I said, uh, I said look, y- your sister is, is doing fine right now. She's outpacing you even in this. Look, she's skipping on this walk. Well, that was all he needed. That was all the motivation that he needed to say, okay, game on. So we round the corner and we're walking back up the hill towards our house. And the next thing I know is uh, this child who had been grumbling and complaining about the walk was now sprinting past uh, everybody else in the family to prove a point. And what was the point he wanted to prove? Well, if his sister could do it, he can do it. Then there's one of my other kids who's, who's one of the, the middle of the five. I guess there's not more than one middle. He's the middle of the five, right? It's, it's Luke. And Luke, uh, when we go on walks, he likes to take his, his little Strider bike that he has. And he likes to ride on that. And, and that's a bike without pedals. And so he kind of pushes off. Well, he's fine on the downhills. But when we get to round the corner on, at, at the park and go back uphill, he starts to get pretty tired. He starts to get pretty weary. And he doesn't know that he can do it. And he needs me to hang back with him and to encourage him along the way and to say, hey, you know what? You can do it. Luke, keep going. You're almost there, buddy. You can make it. Look, the end is in sight. It's all right. You can do this. See, sometimes we need that encouragement. We need that trainer that's at the gym with us, that's pushing us to do one more rep, to go one more mile, to do a few more crunches. We need that voice in our life. We need that person even more so who's gone before us who's done this ahead of us, who set the tone and set the example and gone before and said, look, this is possible to do what I'm asking you to do. And in our text in 1 Peter this week, that's what Jesus has provided for us. That's what Peter is showing for us. He's holding out the example of Christ to us after he spent so long calling us to suffer well, to suffer even unjustly and not to 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 kick against the goads with that, not to push back against that, but to make sure that we are even embracing that and following in the example that our Savior has set. We're going to be in the text of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22 together this week. And I want us to think about that example that we have in Christ. I want us to draw motivation as we think about suffering unjustly, as we just think about suffering in general in this life, which right now in our current circumstances, so many are in that spot, you guys are, are struggling, suffering. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's just relational. And you're in a spot where you're saying, man, this is difficult. I want us to look to the example that we have in Christ, an example that far surpasses anything that, that you and I are ever going to be called to do, a, a level of suffering that goes beyond anything that you and I are ever going to endure. We see that example in Christ Jesus, our Savior. And so pick up with me in 1 Peter chapter 3, and let's read verses 18 through 22. Peter says this. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter has just come off of a text that we looked at last week where he's calling us to suffer well and even set an example of of suffering well that's going to cause people to say, hey, what is going on? Always being ready to make a defense for the hope that we have, right, as we suffer as believers in this world. And he's anticipating maybe some objections that people might have here. Objections that, where people might say, yeah, but, but Peter, you don't, you don't know what I'm going through right now. Peter, you can't expect me to actually suffer well when this is the injustice that I'm up against. Peter, you, you can't expect me to, to, to be concerned about being a witness to, to a lost world when, when my family is going through this trial. Can you? And so Peter connects that context with where he goes in, in our passage this week with that word that begins our passage, for. He says, for Jesus Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. See, Peter is, is holding out the example of Christ to us as the foundation, as the bedrock for us. He's holding out Christ to us, as we talked about earlier, as that trainer that's pushing us, that's saying, look, I've done this. I've gone before you. You can do this. Keep pressing on. And Peter's saying, look to Jesus, just like the author of Hebrews does. Look to Jesus. Look to Christ. Look to what he's done for us. And remember how he's suffered far more than you will ever suffer in this life. He says this. He says, Jesus Christ suffered once for sins. We're right in the midst, on the heels of this, this week, the, the backside of, of celebrating Easter. Though it was far different this year than it's ever been before for us, we still took time and set aside to remember the death of Christ on Good Friday, even pondering the cross. And that's what Peter wants us to do in this opening part of this passage. He wants us to think about the death of Christ, to think about the cross. Jesus suffered once for sins suffered the the physical pain of the cross, suffered the the emotional pain of of even being betrayed by one of his followers in Judas when he was in the garden. But more than all of those, he suffered under the the pain that none of us as followers of Christ, praise God, will ever have to, to know. And that is he suffered under the wrath of God poured out against sins. Not just sins in general, but our sins, your sins, my sins, laid on him on the cross that led to the cry of dereliction from the cross when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered once for sins. And then he goes on and he says, The righteous for the unrighteous. See, Jesus didn't belong on that cross according to the the laws of man or the law of God. He had done nothing deserving that death as the testimony from the thief on the cross even bore. That Jesus was innocent. That Jesus was guiltless. That Jesus was sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that as well, that he became sin who knew no sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the great exchange took place, that we received the righteousness merited by Jesus' perfection. That is now credited to our account, but on his account goes all of our sinfulness, our anger, lust, pornography, 
stealing, covetousness, greed, malice, wrath, slander, gossip, road rage, all of those things put on the righteous one. The righteous one suffered for the unrighteous. Who are the unrighteous? That's you and I. That's our sins. But he suffered for us that, Peter goes on to say, he might bring us to God. See, Jesus had the goal of of our reconciliation in mind when he went to the cross, which is why the writer of Hebrews says that he could despise the shame of the cross. And so we have this example, Peter saying, look, I know what I'm asking you to do is difficult, but remember Christ. Remember the death of the one who suffered the righteous one for the unrighteous. Yes, men, you and I might be suffering unjustly, but we can't say that we are the righteous suffering for the unrighteous. We can't say that we are suffering unjustly the way that Jesus suffered unjustly for our sins. Being put to death, Peter says, in the flesh. Being put to death in the flesh. You remember Philippians 2 and Paul's words there as he calls to mind the death of Christ. And he says he humbled himself to the point of death. And then he says this, even death on a cross. One of the most humiliating, embarrassing deaths, degrading deaths that anyone could ever die. Not only during that time in history, but even today, as you think of all of the methods of execution, uh, there's, you'd be hard-pressed to find one more embarrassing, more humiliating, more degrading than was crucifixion. And yet that's how Christ died for you and me. So as we think about that, on the heels of a passage where Peter has called us to suffer and endure while we are suffering unjustly, he's now calling us to look to Christ. And so as you men are are thinking about that, and maybe you're struggling where you are, and you're going, I don't know how I'm going to put one foot in front of the other. Peter says, look to Jesus. Our first point from the passage this week is this. Endure patiently as you follow Christ's example. Endure patiently as you follow Christ's example. Again, when you go to the gym and you work out, you don't want a a scrawny little guy that looks like me coming up to you and talking to you about how many bench press reps you should do, right? No, you want a guy that's big who you look at and you're like, oh, yeah, you've been on the weight bench before. You know what this is all about. You can can bench press way more than I can bench press. If you're going to tell me how I should do this, I'm going to follow you. Well, Peter's doing that with Christ. He's saying, guys, Christ has suffered far more than you and I ever will. He suffered as the unrighteous or as the, the, the righteous for the unrighteous. And he's calling you and I to do that, to remember the death. See, Peter wants us to, to, to meditate on this suffering of Christ and to think about how he suffered so that you and I, as we are grumbling and complaining, will all of a sudden look at our circumstances and go, oh, wait a minute. I can go further. I can hang in here. I can do more. I can remain faithful and put one foot in front of the other. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12, 3. He says, consider Christ. Think about this example that we have in Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's like me with my son, right? As my daughter was outpacing him on that walk, looking at him and going, look at her. Look at She's on this same walk, and she's skipping up in front of you, son. Don't grow weary and faint-hearted. Press on, right? Well, Peter's holding us the example of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is holding out the example of Christ and saying, consider that example so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted as you suffer yourself. It's interesting, uh, the writer of Hebrews develops this concept of, of Christ's suffering. 
He says this in Hebrews 2.10. He says, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. So we're talking about Jesus. The one for whom and by whom all things exist. It was fitting. It was right. It was good. It was proper. In bringing many sons to glory, that he should make the founder of their salvation, that God the Father should make the founder of our salvation, Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering. It's an interesting concept, an interesting phrase, Hebrews 2.10, that, that Jesus needed to be made perfect through suffering. And, and we want to throw up the red flags and say, well, wait a minute, doesn't that imply an imperfection about Jesus? How should we understand this, that there was something lacking about Jesus? Well, the writer helps us to understand more in Hebrews 5. He says this in verses 7 through 8. He says, in the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5, 7 through 8, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So here the author has us looking at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, pouring out his prayers to the Lord. Father, let this cup pass from me. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so in chapter 2, verse 10, you have this idea that Jesus needed to be made perfect through suffering. What does that mean? Well, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, we find out, though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, this isn't obedience from a state of of disobedience. This is obedience from a state of, of untested obedience. See, Jesus was brought to full completion. His example, his uh, his, his uh, merit for, for this ultimate sacrifice of his, of his death on the cross was, was made complete through his obedience to the point of death, as Paul says, even death on a cross, right? And so Peter is calling us, think about Christ. Think about this example. As he needed to learn this through suffering, so too we learn something through our suffering. God is completing us and, and even perfecting us through suffering as well. That's what James says. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, that you might be, there's our word again, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so just like the trials of Christ were perfecting his obedience to the Lord. So for us, brothers, uh, the, the trials that you and I endure, the suffering that we go through, we follow in the footsteps of Christ as God is, is, is causing them to complete our obedience to him as well. Paul says this in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope comes out of suffering. Hope comes out of endurance, and that does not put us to shame, because we've got this guarantee, this future. And that's what Christ had too, right? That's why the writer of Hebrews said in another passage where he says, look, Jesus despised the shame of the cross. Why? Because he was looking to the joy that was set before him. Brothers, as you and I follow in Christ's footsteps, as we endure as he endured, as we are obedient as he was obedient, what motivates us, what sustains us is the same confidence that Christ had that you and I have as well. And in fact, Peter turns his attention there because he says this. He says, for Christ also suffered, verse 18 in our text, 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, reconcile us to God, right? We've been 
been talking about that in point one. Being put to death in the flesh, and then he says this, but made alive in the Spirit. Made alive in the Spirit. Praise God, right, that Good Friday is followed by Resurrection Sunday. Praise God that the tomb was empty after three days. Praise God that that the grave could not hold him, that death could not hold him. This is the hope and the joy that Christ had set before him that allowed him to despise the cross and endure the shame. See, this is the, the confidence that he had, that the tomb was going to be empty three days later. And it's the same confidence that you and I have. It's this victory that Christ has won, that God has made him alive in the Spirit. Now, you'll notice in the ESV, if you're paying attention, maybe you, you were wondering about this, but the word spirit is uh, with a lowercase s there. And there's debate, there's questions about whether this should be capital S, Holy Spirit, or lowercase s, just the, the, the spirit of Christ's even uh, resurrected self there, um, his, his person as he was risen from the grave, or even the, the realm that he was raised a spiritual being. And there's debate back and forth on that. The ESV translators translate this as lowercase s, that he was uh, made alive in the, the spirit. But either way, whether it's the, the Holy Spirit was part and parcel of his resurrection, which we know he was, or whether this is Christ was raised as a spiritual being, the point is this, the death was overcome. The death and the, the, the forces of evil were overcome, were defeated. And Peter goes on, he says, in which he went and proclaimed. So in this resurrected state, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. This passage has two of the most controversial sections in all of 1 Peter. And we're tackling them both in one message. Because why? It's like a band-aid. You just rip it off, right? But this idea of Jesus proclaiming what to the spirits? Who are they in prison? Where is that? And when did this happen? And what does all this mean? Well, let's see if we can understand. I'm going to suggest to you that these spirits are not departed souls, souls that died in the Old Testament, Old Testament saints. There are some that argue that. That this is Jesus going to the Old Testament saints after the cross, after the resurrection, and announcing the victory, or even evangelizing them. And I think that we don't necessarily see that that would be a legitimate interpretation. And here's just one reason why that I'll give you. You remember when Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and that Lazarus, when he died, he went to be where? In the bosom of Abraham, right? That he was at Abraham's side. Or you think of Jesus on the cross, and you've got the two thieves next to him, and the one is repentant and expresses faith in Jesus. And Jesus says to that man, today you will be with me in what? In paradise. Now you think about Abraham's side, and you think about paradise, and now you think about how Peter is describing that these spirits are in prison. And those two things don't line up. So I don't think this is Peter suggesting that Jesus went back into the the the, the depths of of Sheol to go back to the Old Testament saints to proclaim victory and to bring them with him into paradise. I don't think that's it at all. I think what Peter's saying here is that Jesus went and announced victory to the the demonic forces. Uh, That this announcement, in fact, it's the Greek word keruso, which means to proclaim. It's not the word for evangelize. It's not the word for, for good news. And in fact, when Peter uses this word keruso, he never uses it in in connection with preaching the gospel. So I don't think here he's saying that that Jesus was going to announce victory and and announce the gospel to the the saints. I think he's going to announce victory and and triumph over the forces of the enemy. 
as we think about the, the letter of 1 Peter, there's angels all over the place. In chapter 1, verse 12, that the angels are there. If you remember, they're longing to know the things that the prophets wrote about. They're longing to understand the things of the gospel. They're longing to, to know what this means. And so we see the angelic forces there. Or then there's uh, 1 Peter 3, 22, where it says that as a result of Christ's accomplished work on the cross, that all of the, the angelic forces are going to be subjected to Christ, that he is going to rule over them. And then you've got, of course, in, in chapter 5, when we'll get there, when, when Peter says of Satan, he says, beware of your enemy because he's prowling about as a roaring lion. And not just him, but his demonic forces are at work in this present darkness as well. Or 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Jude chapter 6, Revelation, or Jude verse 6, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Again, I'll say those again. 2 Peter 2, 4, Jude 6, Revelation 20, 1 through 3. All speak of imprisoned, just like we have the language here, imprisoned spirits, imprisoned demons. So who were they then? What does this look like? Who were these imprisoned spirits? What, does, what is Peter talking about? Well, Peter references there the, uh, the days of Noah. And there are some that suggest that because of this reference, he's, he's pointing back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. When the sons of God, which we understand to be angelic fallen angels there, came to, to cohabitate, to live, to sleep with the, the, the women on earth. And the Nephilim came out of that. And so there are those that believe that, that Peter is limiting the scope of this to saying that that's who Jesus went to proclaim victory over over to the, the offspring, over to the demonic offspring of those Nephilim and the, the, uh, the fallen angels during the days of Noah. There are others, though, that, that simply believe that Noah was just a, a reference to another time of intense wickedness on the earth. Noah was commonly referred to in the, the New Testament. He was kind of the prototype of the Old Testament righteous man. In Matthew 24, 37 through 39, Jesus points to the suddenness of the flood as a, a reference to the suddenness of the coming of the Son of Man. In Hebrews eleven seven, Noah is held up as uh, one of the, the, the godly men in the hall of faith. In 2 Peter 2, 5, we find that, that God preserved Noah as the herald of righteousness. And also in 2 Peter 3, 5 through 9, that future judgment of God uh, destroying the earth and the, the, the final judgment is compared to God destroying the earth through the flood. So Noah was a common referent uh, in the New Testament time. He was a, a popular figure. And so it's possible that Peter was just using him as, uh, as a, a representative of, of fallen angels as a whole. But regardless, whatever it is, the, the end of the day, are we going to know exactly who this was or when this took place in the economy of Christ's death and resurrection? Well, the answer is no, not specifically but we can get the point that Peter's driving at here. That part of the good news of the gospel is that after Christ was crucified, he rose from the dead, he went and he proclaimed victory to the, the enemy forces. He went and announced to the enemy, announced to Satan and his demons, I have won the battle. It is over. You think of Colossians 2, 14 through 15, and that's where it says that our sins have been nailed to the cross there and that Jesus has triumphed over the, the forces of darkness. See, this was Christ's proclamation of victory over the demonic realm. And so our unanswered questions may still remain, but we get the main point. And the main point is this. In fact, it's our second point here. It's this. Find courage in your Savior's victory over the enemy. Find courage in your Savior's victory over the enemy. Because remember the context here, right? We can get caught up in the details of talking about Noah and these imprisoned spirits. And, 
when did this happen? But the context is he was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, and he went and proclaimed what? Victory over the spirits who are in prison. And I think that's encouraging to us, right? If, if you remember, Peter's writing to encourage his readers who are facing persecution. So he's telling them, think about this. Christ has won a victory over the demonic forces. Take hope, take courage in that. A lot of people have asked me about this current coronavirus, COVID-19 situation. and said, you know, it seems like Satan's having his heyday right now. And, and it may very well be that there's a, a lot of demonic activity going on right now. Or other people have, have brought up their problems with their marriages or the problems with, with their children or sickness and brokenness and said, hey, is, is this a possibility, a result of spiritual warfare? And the answer is, yeah, certainly it could be a result of spiritual warfare. Sometimes it's a result of God's discipline in our lives. Other times it's just a situation like Job faced, Right. But certainly the demonic forces are active in this world. Paul even says, look, our our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces at work in this present age. But here's the hope that I want you to hold on to, that Peter wanted his readers to hold on to. And that is this, they're fighting a losing battle. Those demons, those, those enemy forces are fighting a losing battle. Colossians 2, here it is, 13 through 15. You were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. It's a picture of that Roman victory procession and parade where the conquered foes go before the victorious general and they're embarrassed and they're humiliated and they're ashamed and they are defeated. They no longer have their weapons. They've been disarmed. And now they're in a a position of abject subjection to the conquering king. Men, Christ is that conquering king. And he has paraded the demonic forces in front of him. They have been defeated. So are they still active today? Yes, they are. But can they do anything to you to ultimately win the battle that matters? No. Why? Because that battle was won at the cross. When he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So men, again, as you suffer, as you endure trials, as you endure difficulties in your life, and you are tempted to grow faint-hearted, or weary, I would say to you what Peter says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, not only as the one who's gone before you, the righteous who suffered for the unrighteous, but also now look to him and remember the victory that he won for you. And find courage in that victory to face whatever is in front of you today. And know that you have the the ultimate battle won. He goes on, It says, not only has this victory been won, but we've been delivered from God's judgment, just like Noah and his family were delivered from the flood. He continues with this next section here. He's just talked about, let me back up and and get a running start with the context. He's brought our minds back to the flood. When God went to Noah and said, Noah, build the ark. Noah built the ark. And as he was building the ark, he was mocked. He was, you know, everything else. Why are you doing that? That's foolish, everything else. And, And only eight people believed in the the coming judgment, Noah and his family. And they get on the ark and and then God sends the flood. And the waters that were sent to destroy the earth, Noah and his family are delivered from those waters by the ark, right? They are spared from judgment. They are saved through water, as Peter puts it here. How? The ark floating them on, on top of the water became their source of salvation, of deliverance there. And now he goes from that and he comes and jumps into a New Testament phenomenon here in verse 21. And he says this, baptism 
which corresponds to this, your, your deliverance, the deliverance of Noah, the salvation of Noah. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers have been being subjected to him. You know, when you're dealing with a, a document that's been breathed out by God, it's hard to argue with the way it's written, right? As much as I might wish to go back and say, hey, Peter, could you, could you maybe word this one section just a little bit differently? I mean, I, you know, Peter, it's been uh, almost 2,000 years now. There have been a lot of people that have held on to those words, baptism now saves you. They, they've ignored the rest of the context that you're writing, but they've held on to those. It's caused a lot of problems in the church. Peter, do you think maybe... But see, when we're dealing with a, a document that's breathed out by God, we have to take it as it is and understand it as it was intended to be understood. And just as a, a quick Bible study methods basic foundation here, men, context is so important, right? We have to look at verse 21, and if we look at it without its context, the implication might appear to be that Peter's arguing that baptism is part of the salvation process. That if you're not baptized, you're not saved. And there have been those, and I've encountered them in my ministry in the past, who've wanted to argue for baptismal regeneration. In other words, that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. That in order to fully be saved, fully be saved, you also have to be baptized, not just to repent and believe. But when we look at the context, we see that Peter's actually arguing against that. In fact, as we continue on here, he says, baptism now saves you. But what's the next phrase right there in the text? He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, Peter's saying, I'm not talking about physical baptism. I'm not talking about ceremonial cleansing. I'm not talking about you getting in a tank and getting dunked, right? Peter's saying, that's not the baptism that I have in mind. It's not a salvation that comes through a physical removal of dirt from the body. He says, but it comes through an appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal to God for a good conscience conscience. If you look back up in verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope is, that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. And now Peter says, when we are baptized, we are appealing to God for this good conscience. Where does that good conscience come from? Peter goes on to say this. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you've ever been with us here at Compass Bible Church and seen a baptism service, you understand that what we're talking about when we answer the question, does baptism save you? We all answer what, men? Answer, go ahead, right there. Which one, right? Because there's two baptisms that we need to address here. The first one, Peter's already set aside. I'm not talking about physical baptism. So, baptism saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Okay? It's not a physical thing. You don't need to be ceremonially, ceremonially cleansed through the physical act, act of baptism to be saved. But there's that second act of baptism. And it's actually the one that happens first, right? And that's when we are put into, as Pastor Mike always says, placed into, immersed, baptizo, immersed into Christ. That we are united with Christ. That's the baptism that saves us. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 4. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been, here's our word, baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized, there's the word again, into his death. 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you see there, Paul is implying our baptism into his death implies our baptism into his resurrection. And so that's what Peter's driving at here. We appeal to God for a good conscience. God, I want to be righteous and innocent before you. How does that happen? How can I appeal to that level of conscience before God? Only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only through being spiritually baptized into Christ, placed into Christ. So that when God looks at us, he sees that exchange that took place in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He sees that you are now the righteousness of God because your sins have been placed on his son, Jesus Christ. And so when Peter is calling our attention to baptism, what he's doing here is not saying baptism saves you, so get in the tank. He's saying, no, baptism saves you. Remember the deliverance that you have experienced, just like the deliverance that Noah and his family experienced. In fact, it's far greater because Noah's deliverance was temporal. Your deliverance in your baptism through Christ is eternal. That's our third and final point together this week. It's this. Trust our victorious Savior for your ultimate deliverance. Trust our victorious Savior for your ultimate deliverance. This is a message for you men if you're out there and you are not a Christian and you are listening to this and you've gotten this far with me. This is where I want you to think and this is the action point. The only thing that I want you to think about this week is this. You need deliverance. The flood, so to speak, metaphorically, the the judgment of God is coming. And right now, if you are not in Christ, you are an object of his wrath as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. And so right now, my plea for you men, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, is this. Be be, be saved today. Place your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Repent from your sins. That means turn from your sins. Leave them behind. The old way of life, leave it behind. And now follow Christ through faith in Him. Trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That He lived a righteous life that is now yours because the exchange has taken place there at the cross. Men, trust in that. Repent and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because you need to be delivered, men. Just as those that were in Noah's day needed to be delivered. And so many didn't heed the call. Men, if you are not in Christ, heed the call and be delivered. Men, if you are in Christ, we still need to remember this daily. That our trust and our hope and our confidence is not in a vaccine for a virus. It's not in a a pill for a virus. It's not in the economy opening back up. It's not in you getting another job. It's not in you keeping your job. That's not in where your ultimate hope is because none of that will deliver you, right? It's in a, a resurrection that's coming that's yours because of Christ's resurrection. It's in a, a future that's yours because you've been baptized, you've been placed into Christ, and that is what saves you. And so, men, you need to remember that and trust in that ultimate deliverance. It's interesting, during Peter's day, baptism, and I think this is why he, he turns to that here. When you were baptized and you publicly identified with Christ, you were placing the crosshairs of the enemy squarely on your shoulders. And for them, it was political persecution, religious persecution. They were under the threat of even death. They were driven from their home. Men, you and I aren't facing the same thing, but, but men, when we stand up and we identify with Christ, we're going to get the attention of the enemy. And we're going to face trials and opposition. Just like Scripture says, anyone who desires to live a godly life will face persecution. And when we are united with Christ, identified with Christ, placed into Christ, we all of a sudden, we, we get the crosshairs of the enemy on us. 
Suffering's going to come in this world. We can't be surprised at that. You're going to live a difficult life. It's going to be hard. And some of you are in the throes of that right now. And again, you're, you may even be tempted to think, Peter, I don't think I can do what you're calling me to do here. And that's why Peter has taken this pause and he's held up Christ for us. And he said to us, look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus suffered more than you and I will ever suffer. The righteous for the unrighteous. The dereliction, the cry of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Men, you will never have to utter those words because Jesus uttered those words for you. And then Peter wants us to be encouraged. To know that the victory over darkness, the victory over the evil forces has already been won. And so we can draw hope and confidence and and encouragement to put another foot forward because of that. That there's nothing that the enemy can do to you ultimately because the victory has already been won. That Christ has triumphed over them. He has announced it. It is done. It is finished, right? And then finally, we need to draw our ultimate hope in the midst of our suffering and trials, knowing that we have been united with Christ in a death like his. Certainly, as Paul says, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. We too will be made alive in the Spirit as he was made alive in the Spirit. What great hope and confidence that is. So yeah, so often we need that trainer coming alongside us going, hey, give me another five reps. Give me another lap. Give me another three sit-ups. Whatever it is, we need that, that push, that shove, that 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 exhorting, that encouragement to keep pressing on. And that's what Peter's given us today by pointing us to Christ. So men, let me encourage you, like the writer of Hebrews does, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. Men, look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would enable us to do that, that you would remind us, prompt us to look to Christ more often than we do. Men, uh, Father, I, I pray for the men who are suffering right now, going through difficult times. I pray that you would alleviate their pain, alleviate their difficulty, alleviate their suffering if it be your will, God. And if their suffering continues, I pray that you would enable them and allow them by your spirit to suffer well, that they would leave an example, that they would be a witness, that they would be a testimony. And when they grow weary and faint-hearted, God, I pray that you would direct their attention to Christ who went before us and suffered so well on our behalf. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.